It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, how do we keep Christmas about Jesus? Coming up in this episode... Jesus is the reason for the season, but face it, the competition is fierce. So how do we keep things in perspective in spite of all the other stuff? Know the story of Jesus. Know the miracles. Know about the angelic intervention and know how God's will was done. But how will we know? Now, here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years. Hey, Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for today's episode? Luke 2, verse 10. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. So what is Christmas all about? Well, you know, that depends on who you are. For some, Christmas is traditionally a time for family and friends. It's a time when we are more likely to put aside the stresses of our daily grind and give a little more and smile a little more and notice what's around us a little more. It's a time to slow down and have gratitude. However, for others, it's a time of gifts and parties and decorations and entertainment. Spending goes into overdrive and the excitement rules the day. It's a time to speed up and be everywhere. For Christians, Christmas should be a time for gratitude as we reflect on the birth of our Lord Jesus. While we can do the family and friends things and also be a part of the excitement and entertainment, how can we maintain our focus on the most important thing? And folks, that's what today's podcast is all about. It's maintaining our focus on the most important thing at a season when there is all of that competition. So as we focus on focusing, what are we focusing on? <laughs> well, <laughs> well focus, focus needs an objective. It needs an objective that's large enough and unique enough to capture your complete attention. So in the case of the birth of Jesus, there are many such factors, and here is the first. Jonathan, we're going to look at focal points. What's our first focal point here? Miraculous beginnings for history-changing events. In Scripture, there are many significant transition points that changed history. The Great Flood was the destruction of a world utterly corrupted by spirit beings commingling with human beings. The end result was a new beginning, a new age in which God would deal with faithful individuals. All right, so we're looking at miraculous beginnings for history-changing events. We had had the flood. History changed again when God began dealing with the 12 sons of Jacob. In this age, these 12 became the 12 tribes of Israel, and now there was an entire nation who would receive God's guidance. Another change there. Then history changed again. But this change could be far more dramatic and reaching than the previous changes. Jesus would come. His arrival would be specially marked as would his life and death. The change he brought would affect every man, woman, and child who ever lived and would ever live. The beginning of this change would be marked by several significant events. The first event to lead up to the change was the ending of the Old Testament. So the ending of the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. And when you look at Malachi, you've got the ending of one, and then the New Testament begins with the events that surround the beginning, the, the birth of Jesus, so to speak. So this is the end of the Old Testament, the last book. At the end of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, God prophesies what is to come. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. You know, Rick, uh, these last words of the Old Testament essentially tell us how the New Testament will start. Before the coming of Messiah, there would be the coming of one who would prepare the people for the Messiah. Even though hope might be forgotten over time, it does not mean that the giver of all hope forgets. And Jonathan, that's such a, such a good point. And, you know, this is, 
sure proof that we need to study both the Old and New Testaments. They're connected. And you're right, the last words of the Old Testament are an introduction to the New Testament. But here's the catch. It would be 400 years before God would hear from, would be heard from again. His providence and his presence would be felt next, 400 years later, through the angel Gabriel, who appeared to Zacharias, the soon-to-be father of John the Baptist. Now look, we're not going to be able to tell the story of this angelic visit with Zacharias to foretell the birth of John the Baptist today, but we're going to use it as a reference point. Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, told Zacharias that his son would be the fulfillment of the last words of Malachi. This was the signal that the Messiah was now not far away. As a matter of fact, Gabriel would appear again in six months to the young virgin Mary. Think about one of those people who God has chosen to use, Kian, on the extraordinary faith they would have to have exhibited to follow through on the things God was putting in front of them. As we focus on Mary and the message Gabriel delivered, let's observe how her faith was so firmly grounded and true. Let's read Luke chapter 1, 26 through 29. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from from God to a city called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And, and Jonathan, before commenting on that, I just want to remind us, why are we telling the story? We're telling it so we can focus on the details so that the true story of the birth of Jesus becomes that centerpiece in our hearts and our minds. This part of the story before the birth of Jesus is just as important as the birth of Jesus. So this is important. So you've read about uh, this, this angel coming in and talking to her and giving this incredible salutation. In this second appearance of the angel Gabriel, we're going to see that the circumstances he addressed were a near polar opposite of his first visit with Zacharias. Elizabeth, who was the wife of Zacharias, was older, and they were married, been married many years, and they were childless. Mary, on the other hand, was young and only engaged. Gabriel had spoken to the husband the first time, had spoken to Zacharias, while here he spoke to the young bride-to-be, Mary. So you can see the opposites. He greeted, his greeting was one of great favor. And Mary's reaction, you think about it, an angel's coming to visit you unexpectedly, her reaction is confused and fearful. It's like, wait, 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 stop. The angel Gabriel is talking to me? An angel? What is going on? How, what, what kind of reason is there for all of this? Well, the angel continued, Luke 1, verses 30 through 33. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Well, Rick, think about the questions this young and faithful woman would have had. Have a son? He is to be called the son of the Most High? He's to be a king forever? His kingdom will have no end? These were big questions, and they had no context in the reality of her life. Yeah, this, this literally comes out of nowhere, and this announcement has some of the biggest news any human being could ever be on the receiving end of. And you're like, what? This is amazing. And, and, and the other part of this, Jonathan, is there is an obvious immediacy to all of this because the angel was addressing her right here and right now. So this could not be about some future time. So here's the thing. Faith could accept some of what Gabriel said for she undoubtedly, Mary undoubtedly looked forward to having children and would see a profound blessing in a son of hers be, being used of God at some time down the road. But the angel was talking about now, not down the road. So the question, above all questions that needed answering, had to be asked. And that question is, wait a minute, this is pretty marvelous what I've been told, but how can this be since I'm a virgin? It's impossible, right? From right. her perspective, right? Yes, At that moment. Absolutely. And it is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> 
Well, Gabriel answered in Luke 1, 35 through 37, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month for nothing will be impossible with God. So Mary asked, how can this be? And the angel answered. But this answer was so unexpected and so out of the ordinary that for most, it would have been completely unfathomable. But Mary, Mary was a remarkable young woman of extraordinary faith. She listened intently to this messenger of the Most High God, and Gabriel's last words must have rung true in the deepest recesses of her young heart. For nothing will be impossible with God. I mean, just think about that. Nothing will be impossible with God. He said that to give her the sense of security that God's got you and will take care of you. It's amazing. Let's go to, let's continue. Let's go to uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Wow, that's amazing. Mary's great faith opened the door for God's world-changing miracle to take place. Well, well, that begs the question, are we attentive to see God's leadings in our lives? Yeah, you know, and, and this is part of making the reality of the birth of Jesus effective. Do Am I willing to be a servant of God the way Mary was, to be willing to go wherever I'm pointed to? There was a practicality that needed to be solved with this miracle, but God had that all well in hand, and we will touch on that soon. For now, let's follow what Mary did soon after the announcement. Luke chapter 1, 39 through 42. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. So she's going to this cousin because she's looking for encouragement there. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So God's Spirit touched her, and Elizabeth knew what was happening. She knew that her baby would be named John, and he would plow the road for Mary's baby, Jesus, who would save the world. I mean, think about these two women and what they know before anybody else does. It's amazing. Elizabeth's humility was plain, and here's what she said in Luke 1, 43 to 45. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Words of great faithfulness on the part of Elizabeth, who had essentially sequestered herself for these six months. Mary's response, we've heard some, a little bit of Elizabeth's, but Mary's response was also one of faith and humility and praise. First, she recognizes in her response her own honored position. Uh, Jonathan, Luke 1, 46 to 49. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. She doesn't mince words, and she puts the glory to God very plainly. And then she recognizes the power of God's mercy upon all men, especially Israel. Let's go to Luke 1, 50 to 55. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and he has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. He has spoken to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. So you see the great praise and honor that these two women give to God. These two blessed women encouraged each other right up until just about the time that John was born. And then we have Luke 1, 56. 
And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. So she went home because now she had to prepare herself for the birth of Jesus. So, Jonathan, we're focusing on making Jesus our focus. What do we have? When we realize that the birth of Jesus was preceded by prophecy, angelic visits, and miracles, it reminds us of God's focus on the event. Whenever God is that focused, we always should give our best attention to what he has done. So what are we going to do throughout the Christmas season to make Jesus real? Let's be a witness of God's goodness by providing a savior for all men. A savior from what? From this sick, sin-sick world that's dying to a future life of peace, love, and joy. How can we hold it back? Yeah, and that's the thing. When you get the details of the story, hopefully it's inspiration. So we don't want to hold it back because it's too magnificent to keep in. You know, it really is startling to see the incredible foresight and actions that God has put into fulfilling his plan. We have watched God's hand working with Zacharias, Elizabeth, and Mary. What about Joseph? Well, we've now been reminded of what it takes to make a plan work. Mary's extreme faith saw and grasped extreme hope. Extreme hope brings extreme peace. And peace for all is really what Christmas is all about. For Mary's husband to be Joseph, this extreme peace, for him, this needed a whole different kind of attention because he's coming from a whole different perspective. They're only engaged. They're not married yet. So we have to deal with this part of the story next. So when we talk about focus, you know, we, we talked about focus needing an objective, but focus also needs details. The more we know about what makes something work, the stronger our attention will be to it. And that's really what we're going to look into in this segment. So what's our, what's our second focal point, Jonathan? Providential circumstances that give events space to unfold. Miracles are amazing things, but they are not God's only way to unfold his will. God's providence plays a major role as well. For his providence to work, there need to be those who are willing followers. Joseph was such a man. In many ways, he is an unsung hero of this story. And Jonathan, as we were preparing for this podcast, you and I both, we both love Joseph. We do. He's, he is a man's man as far as I'm concerned in terms of his service to God. So we're going to tell you a little bit of his story here. Let's start with Matthew 1, 18. Now remember, He's the betrothed to, to Mary. They're not married, and yet she's pregnant. Okay? That's a problem. Let's start. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Well, Rick, God saw fit to have a virgin conceive, and he chose the young woman Mary. She is a truly faithful worshiper of God, who was betrothed to an older man by the name of Joseph. Mary had God's messenger, Gabriel, tell this young woman that she will miraculously conceive before she was married. Now, how would she tell Joseph? That's the big question. How do you tell Joseph? For Joseph, this would have been a completely unexpected, unique, and horrifying dilemma. What should he do? He could not have Mary, he, well, he could have had Mary sent away in public shame because she's pregnant, they're not married, and in those days, folks, that was a major issue, especially in the Jewish nation. But the scriptures tell us that he was a righteous man and he didn't want to disgrace her, and this tells you the, the character. Joseph's decision was to send her away privately because he deeply respected and we believe he loved her. This was an extraordinary and life-changing decision that he was having to make, so he would sleep on it to be sure. And the scriptures do tell us that he slept on that decision. And as he slept, well, you know what happens. An angel of the Lord comes to him in a dream. Matthew 1, 20. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Boy, that angel gets right to the point. Don't be afraid to do this. This certainly was an explanation in harmony with how Mary had tried to explain her dilemma. Though it still seemed far-fetched, it did, however, carry with it a clear direction and a godly purpose. So, but there's more to explain. And the angel continued, Matthew 1, 21 to 23. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. 
Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Rick, imagine being Joseph and waking up with this vivid message in your mind. That was not some wild contrived explanation. Rather, it was a fulfillment, a direct fulfillment of prophecy, and not just any prophecy, but the prophecy of the Messiah. Mary, his espoused, was carrying the Savior of all, and he, Joseph, would have the opportunity and privilege to raise this child to manhood. Glory to God in the highest. And you think about, you think about the change in Joseph's thinking when he went to bed and when he woke up. He woke up enlightened by the grace of God, to see what his mission was to be. Joseph was willing to accept what was emotionally implausible and physically impossible. He now understood that God's plan was not only unfolding before him, but his plan was making an integral part of its accomplishment. So what did Joseph do? He rose to this mighty challenge. He knew people would talk, but he chose to be a godly man in the face of sure misunderstanding and sure persecution. Joseph took the reins given him by God, and he forged ahead with courageous humility. At this point of the story, we usually begin to forget about Joseph (laughs) and relegate him to being a background player because the story um, becomes all about Mary and then all about Jesus. However, (laughs) Joseph continued to show his courage, humility, and leadership as he continued to receive and follow direct instructions from God. These instructions, this providence from God enabled him to best protect his baby son, the baby boy who would become the future savior and protector of the world. And Jonathan, what we want to do now for the next few minutes is just pause with the story of the birth of Jesus and jump ahead in the story and track the strength that Joseph showed and his faith and his leadership that he displayed. For through these next experiences, his example teaches us about what being a man really means. So, so men, pay attention, because this is a great example of true manhood. Well, traditional depictions of the nativity scene show the three wise men there in the stable with Joseph, Mary, Jesus, and the animals. In reality, the wise men came around to Bethlehem much later. The scriptures say that they found Jesus and his family in a house, and it was there that they worshiped him and gave him gifts. The Magi's visit was also a trigger for Herod, who was going to have nothing to do with any savior being born and raised in his jurisdiction. So this meant danger was looming. So we set it up. The, 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 the wise men come much later. They're living in a house in Bethlehem. So now let's go to Matthew 2.13 and jump ahead to this part of the story. Now when they, the Magi, had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph, here's the thing about Joseph, one of the many things that that we so admire. Joseph knew how to listen, and Joseph knew how to act. All the angel had to do was to tell him the what, the where, and the why, and Joseph's response was immediate, and it was complete. Remember, they had not yet gone home, but they were still in Bethlehem since Jesus had been born. This was their second instruction to relocate, but this time to another country. God's faith in Joseph was well-placed, for he again courageously walked his family into the unknown, and this time into the deep unknown, because this is a foreign country. God had also provided the gifts of the Magi as a way for them to sustain themselves while in Egypt. So, God's providence was in play, and Joseph responded by obediently providing for his family according to God's direction. This is life and death, Rick. His responsibility went to a higher level here. His son is being threatened. And, you know, and that's the thing. His son is being threatened. And you can see Joseph, even though he's not the biological father, it is his son. And he is protecting his son, and he's doing everything that father should do with God's grace and God's strength leading him. And he is just following along. And you're right, this is, this is life and death. Joseph unmistakably led his family by following God's will and direction. 
we can assume that Joseph would be content to stay in the foreign land of Egypt until otherwise instructed. For to move without instruction would have been to run ahead of God. Soon enough, he received his directions. Let's look at Matthew 2, 19 through 21. But when Herod died, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. I love the way it says it. The angel says, get up, do this. And then it says, and Joseph got up and did this. <laughs> you know, you get the sense. There's no hesitation. There's, okay, yeah. I know what to do now because I've been instructed. So again, it was time to relocate and lead his family to another place for their protection and well-being. Remember, the world then was not the way the world is now. There was no 24-hour news for him to check to see what was going on politically in Israel. Nobody texted him to say, hey, Herod's dead, all's good. He was going back into Israel on just the word of the angel and most likely heading back to Bethlehem. But as he drew closer and discovered the current political landscape, his fatherly instincts caused him some great concern. And we know that when we look at Matthew 2, verses 22 and 23. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city named Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So Rick, Joseph again stood strong in the providence of God's guidance, changed course to finally settle in Nazareth. Other than a brief mention, when Jesus was 12 and was left behind in Jerusalem, this pretty much uh, is all that we know about Joseph. So what may we conclude? Oh, plenty, Jonathan, plenty. Joseph was chosen as a critical early support for the young and tender Jesus. He was strong as a man, courageous in his decisions, daring in his actions, and most importantly, Joseph was humble in his obedience to God's will. That's the most important thing. He had this humility, but he acted based on that humility. Well, God's plan is a plan of hope. For that hope to be sure, it must not only be built upon the firm foundation of prophecy, but must also be built with the sturdy and enduring materials of character. We know that Jesus's character was thoroughly competent and pure, but we do not often think about the strength of character necessary for the supporting cast. You know, and Jonathan, as you were saying that, one of the things I, I, I thought about just at that moment, I don't know that I've ever thought this before, but think about Jesus growing up as a boy and looking up to Joseph. We have seen the character of the man he's looking up to, and the man he's looking up to through his entire life has been saying, God will guide us, God will guide us, God will guide us. So Jesus as a boy, his dad, is this classic example of waiting for God's providence and then jumping to do the will of God. I mean, that is a man, as far as I'm concerned. I want to be like that when I grow up. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> All right, so, so wrapping this up, making Jesus our focus, what do we have? Let's pause and consider that God's providence not only enabled Jesus to be born, but it also enabled him to be protected throughout his childhood. His protection was named Joseph. Joseph is, Joseph's great acceptance obedience, and persistence open the door for God's world-changing miracles to grow and to develop to maturity. And Rick, what really hit me this time about Joseph was that he waited and never ran ahead of the Lord. He always waited for the next instructions from the angel. Joseph was the caretaker and not the decision maker. We know his profession was a carpenter slash craftsman. And as I think about it, in his profession, he needed detailed instructions before taking on a project. This is how he thought. So no wonder he was the perfect man for the job. He, he was by, by trade, by character, by teaching, and he just lived that faith. He's such a great example. This is how we focus on the story of Jesus. This is how his birth becomes real when you see the people that are around him. You know, it is thoroughly inspiring to remember what kind of man Joseph was and how he always followed God's instructions. Now we get to the core of the story, the birth of Jesus. What do the hidden details tell us? 
For an event as momentous as the birth of the world's Savior, the Bible describes it with very few words. That simple fact in and of itself speaks volumes, for God's Word is not so much flowery as it is factual. We're told the story simply so we can study it, simply so we can appreciate it, and we're told it simply so we can apply it to changing our own lives. This is what we want to focus on. This is how you make the birth of Jesus the centerpiece of what's happening around us at the Christmas season. You know, we talked about focus needs and objective, and we talked about focus needs details. Well, focus also thrives on drama. And of course, this story has that as well. The unfolding of an unexpected circumstance in an unusual way keeps us attentive. So Jonathan, what's our third focal point? Humble beginnings are always the origin from which godly greatness grows. All right. So when you think about that, think about the greatest joys of life that uh, have ever been heard of or spoken of. And inevitably, inevitably, you think about the birth of a child. This is an event that marks an end and a beginning. It's the end of a nine-month pregnancy that literally has a physical attachment needing to be cut. And it marks the beginning of a new viable human life, that little baby able to be out there on its own, whose attachments can now grow exponentially and in all directions. Any birth can be seen as a miracle. But the birth of Jesus was the result of a miracle of biblical proportions. Even the heavens would come alive with joy and celebration. So as we look at this, Jonathan, the the idea that the heavens come alive with joy and celebration, we thought we'd just take a moment and put some things on the table and just pause and just listen and just let a verse of a hymn put us in the right frame of mind. Come thou long expected Jesus. Come thou long expected Jesus Lord to set thy people free from our fears and sins release us let us find our rest in Such a big event and such a humble process. Let's read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, and all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Well, Rick, One wonders if Joseph and Mary were aware of the prophecy in Micah and if they used that prophecy as motivation for their journey. Let's read Micah 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So, You wonder about that. Did they know that prophecy? Was that kind of an inspiration? We don't know. But what we do know is this. This journey is said to be about 90 miles by the way of the winding roads of the day. Now, when you're traveling at the speed of donkey, this meant (laughs) it would probably take about five days or so. It would have been a grueling trip, especially for a woman who's nine months pregnant and ready to give birth. Once again, we see Joseph taking the lead as they traveled to the city of his ancestors to pay their taxes. Why didn't God's providence make this easier? Perhaps this shows that those who serve God and his purposes are willing to take the many small steps necessary to be where he wants them to be and to do what he wants them to do. And Jonathan, one of the great, great themes of the birth of Jesus is humility. God's humble servants quietly go about the sometimes difficult business of doing his will. His providence does not take their burdens from them, but his providence sees them through those burdens, and there's a big difference. Let's pause for a second here. 
What about the city of Nazareth, where Joseph and Mary were from? Let's get into that a little bit, Jonathan. All right. Well, jumping ahead to Jesus's ministry, we get a sense of Nazareth in relation to other cities. Let's read John 1, 43 through 47. The next day, he proposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of, of Andrew and Peter. Philip from found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. A special note, uh, Nathanael was also known as Bartholomew, one of the 12 apostles. So you have Nathanael being told, hey, come and see Jesus of Nazareth, he's the one. And his gut response is, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So let's talk a little bit about Nazareth, because it's not looked at with this high, high, high reputation. An interesting comment from Matthew Poole's commentary. Any good thing seems to be meant, the Messiah or any prophet, or more generally, anything which is noble and excellent, and of any remark. So prone are we to think that the kingdom of God comes with observation, that we know not how to fancy how great things should be done by little means, and great persons should arise out of little, contemptible places. So it seems odd. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? This, this reaction was a typical judgment. And you know what, Jonathan? It's a judgment just like we all make. You know, you see the person come from that part of town or whatever, and you say, Oh, he came from that place. And such a stigma can dramatically influence how we treat others, whether you're the person looking at someone coming from a a specific place or being the person coming from that. It triggers how you respond to other people. But for Jesus, for Jesus, the stigma meant exactly nothing, as we can see by his response to Nathaniel. Because remember, Nathaniel says on his way to see Jesus, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Jonathan, what does Jesus say to him? Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And so Nathanael just said, Can any good thing come from Nazareth? Jesus knows his heart. Jesus knows that he just needs to be shown some things that are godly, and he will follow him for the rest of his life. And this is a beautiful, beautiful picture. So for a man who came from a city where no good thing comes from, Jesus was certainly pretty welcoming. (laughs) <laughs> for sure. Yeah, and, and while that's not part of the story of his birth, it certainly is one of the lessons that we can learn about not making judgments out of time, if so to speak. So, Jonathan, let's kind of sum up this Nazareth lesson. God's plan unfolds according to specific principles. One of those principles is that of humility. God purposefully chooses those least esteemed to deliver that which is most highly valued. And that is a beautiful thing because it helps us understand that out of little, because of God's grace and his providence and his spirit and his will, out of little can come great, wonderful, big things. So we're going to go back to the story of Jesus' birth, but you know what? Let's first go back to that hymn, Come Thou Long, Expected Jesus, the second verse. You know, Jonathan, it's easy for us to look at this and and see the big picture. Well, they weren't seeing the big picture. They were in the middle of going this 90-mile journey because they had to. So let's pick up the story in Luke 2, verses 5 and 6. It gives us the reason for going uh, to Bethlehem. To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, 
the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. So outside of this miraculous conception, the angelic visit and the dreams of angels giving direction, the experiences of Mary and Joseph were very unremarkable. There, 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 there were no special provisions. There, there was no special exemption for them. There were no special circumstances. They were required to do what everyone else did, travel where everyone else traveled, and they were required to pay what everyone else paid. It was like, you're just a regular person, so you got to do what regular people do. And that's the way God works. And that's why Joseph and Mary were such wonderful examples to be the parents of the Lord Jesus, because they took their their normalness, they took their un, un their their unremarkable circumstances, and they lived in godly praise. That's a great lesson for us. Let's continue Luke two seven. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. You know, of all the verses in the Bible, this is one that just gives you that that breathtaking perspective. She brings forth her son. He's in these swaddling clothes, and he's laid where? In a manger. A manger, a feeding trough for animals. That's where the newborn is laid to rest, because there's no room anyplace else. So to be born in a stable, to be laid in a manger among the animals, when you think about it, was in fact the most fitting of places for the Lord of men to enter into the world. After all, Jesus would live these humble beginnings each and every day for 33 and a half years. For it was through this humility that he would be able to pay the ransom price. And you think about it, Jonathan, Jesus didn't own anything, right? No, he didn't. For his entire life. So you have this humble, humble, humble beginning, and then you have this humble, humble, humble life that's lived with the power of God's Spirit when he starts his ministry. It's a remarkable story with a remarkable beginning. So making Jesus our focus at this time of year when all of this other stuff is going on, how do we zero in on this? What do we have? Humility brings God glory. Nazareth was undesirable. Bethlehem was small. Joseph and Mary were ordinary people, and Jesus was born in a stable. As we review all of the humble things that surrounded the birth of Jesus, we realize how God can build magnificence out of the smallest and most insignificant things. And don't ever forget that specific lesson, because it helps us to understand the bigness of what God's plans can and do accomplish every day. Not only do these little things turning into big things inspire us, they remind us that God can work with us as well. We have focused on the events leading up to Jesus' birth. What about the events that followed? God's providence works well through humility and ordinary things. As we have seen, he has a way of drawing the spectacular out of what appears to be unexceptional. However, when the time is right, he will allow there to be a display of outward life-changing evidence when his will takes major steps forward. Such was the case on the night that Jesus was born. We've been talking about focus, and we said focus needs an objective. Focus needs detail. Focus thrives on drama. On drama. Well, focus also thrives on majesty. When we are shown something breathtaking and lofty, we tend to just stop, look, and listen. Allowing the majesty to sink in keeps us riveted to the glory of God. And the birth of Jesus is all about the glory of God. So what's our fourth focal point? Godly and glorious displays are affirmations of God's power and plan. Remembering such things increases our faith. And that's what we want to focus on in this segment, these godly and glorious displays that help us to just honor the plan of the Heavenly Father. So back to the story, as Mary is going through the pains of delivering her child, there are not far away shepherds, and they're tending their flocks. And these men are just humbly going about their own business during the night, watching over their sheep, and their lives, their lives were about to take an 
completely unexpected turn. We turn to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the fields, keeping watch over the flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. So, Rick, when an angel of God appears out of nowhere, being afraid is not only natural, it's healthy. <laughs> yeah. it, it shows respect and awe for that which is bigger than we are. The next step is to listen and learn. Let's go back to our text. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be the sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. You know, and it strikes me, Jonathan, as, as you're, you're reading that text, the detail that the angels told the shepherds, you're going to find him lying in a, in a feeding trough. <laughs> it's just like, wait, what? But you see how God's plan is so intertwined. The fulfillment of prophecy, in this case, it required an angelic announcement to a most humble audience of shepherds. Now, how fitting an audience, as the baby Jesus was just born in the city of David, and David himself was once a shepherd. So we've got this, this incredible, wonderful connection. It's the shepherds that get this news in this glorious fashion. And Jonathan, we want to take a few minutes and go to uh, some sound bites from our friends, the Skit Guys. You can find them at theskitguys.com. They do wonderful depictions of many, many uh, scriptural and spiritual stories. And here they're doing a modern day depiction of the reactions of a shepherd's wife from that time. So they're, they're kind of moving it into the modern day, but taking the birth of Jesus, and it's one of these shepherds who witnesses is his wife is telling us the story of what happened. Let's take a look at the first part of the story, or take a listen right now. He and I have a rhythm and a routine here in our humble home, and that morning he was messing it up. See, he comes in at 7.12 every morning on the nose, I hear his boots hit the floor. I make the coffee. He washes the pasture off of him and we take our toast to the patio. That's our thing. He's a quiet man, likes the one word answers, that one. And then he's off to bed. He, um, he keeps the herd at night. Oh, how my parents looked at me when I told them that I'd fallen in love with a shepherd boy. But um, that's a story for another time, or never. But that morning, there were no boots, only quiet, quiet like my husband. And before I could get to the front door, it slammed. It was, it was loud. It was different, as if the front door knew something I didn't know. My husband yells for me. He yells for me. Maybe he's hurt. Maybe he's lost the herd. He's out of breath. He's saying my name as he takes my face in his big hands. He, his eyes, they're full of fear. No awe. Tears are running down his face and he can't stop talking, ranting about this bright light that fell out of the sky and angels Yes, that is what I said. Angels, hundreds of them all over the field proclaiming good news. But what did he mean? Good news. We'll, we'll get back to that shortly. But Jonathan, what a, what a depiction. It just makes you stop and consider the, the dramatic change that was taking place and in those individuals we don't know anything else about. So let, let, let's get, get back to, this, to, to our story. Now, Jesus would grow to assume the throne of David as well. Okay, Rick, uh, hang on. Uh, we know that Jesus didn't reign as king then, but he will in the kingdom, and he will assume David's throne. Right. So that's the future event. So the shepherds with David's background, the kingdom with David's background. You see this, 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 uh, the son of David, so to speak. But imagine, and, and, and the, the story from the skit guys kind of helped us to see this. Imagine the fear and the thrill and the hope instilled in those shepherds. In the still of the night, 
under the vast expanse of the starlit heavens comes this glowing message. It's a message that's full of light. It's, it's full of prophecy fulfilled, and it's full of expectation. And then it was full of music, the thundering chorus of heavenly angelic voices singing praise. And Jonathan, I know music is your thing, so read Luke 2, 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And Rick, humility does not preclude heavenly celebration. Rather, it provokes it. Think about who is being featured in this part of the account of the birth of Jesus. It's these shepherds, not guys you hear a whole lot about, you know, downtown. These are just shepherds. These are the people that are out of the sight of the average person just doing their work. And the humility of their, their place and their time was rewarded with this incredible, incredible message. And it was in this manner that our Lord Jesus was born and was announced at night with the brightness to shepherds. Okay, okay, so you're a shepherd, and you've just heard this amazing message. Now, as a shepherd, what do you do now? I mean, that's a big question. What do you do now? Luke 2, 15 to 16. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. So yeah, shepherds, I can't imagine that shepherds, first of all, they're probably generally separated, all right? But, you know, they don't have, I don't think, tons to talk about. Like, hey, what's up? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. What's up with you? Yeah, I got my sheep. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but, but, you know, so there's this thing that happens that is so incredible. They, in a hurry they rush to see the fulfillment. So you see the faith on their part, because they're not saying, oh, this can't be. They're rushing to go see for themselves. They are in the moment, and they are taking the moment, and they're literally running with the moment. These shepherds knew that they were part of something much bigger than they had ever conceived to be possible. And they acted in faith, and they acted right away. Kind of sounds like Joseph in some ways. And they went and found Mary and Joseph. The baby, as the angel said, lay quietly in a manger. Think of the tranquility and peace of the moment as they cast their eyes on their future Savior and played the chorus of the heavenly host again and again and again in their minds. This was Jesus. This was the one who would save the world. We don't know how many shepherds there were, but their lives changed. Normally, they would keep to themselves but they stepped out of their occupation and into the role of God's messengers. Shepherds were not on the people to listen to list, <laughs> but, but they shared the miracles anyway. And that's a beautiful thing. It is. And, and, you know, they had that boldness that came from just doing what they were doing and being showed something so spectacular, they couldn't keep quiet. And Jonathan, we were talking about the spectacular idea of the birth of Jesus. We need to take those shepherds example and kind of put it to work for ourselves. So, Absolutely. So, so, so to go and see this little baby is one thing, but to take this miracle and publish it amongst the people, well, that was a whole, on a whole other level. These were just shepherds. And like you said, not on a list of people to listen to, but they were emboldened to speak out about the stunning events and the miraculous announcement that they had been a part of. Let's read Luke 2, 17 and 18. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which they were told by the shepherds. So they not only went to see the baby, they went and told the people. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing how just the birth of Jesus changes everything for everybody involved. And the question is, does it change me? right here, right now. Let's go back to the shepherd's wife, part two. Now I know my husband, the shepherd, he will never hold the scepter of a king, never sit with dignitaries to solve the world's problems, never even be invited to a meal 
where he has to wear a suit. But he was given the greatest edict in all the land, all the world, actually, called to the front lines by God himself to proclaim this good news. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign unto you that you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. I can say it in my sleep now. I can see it sometimes too. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. God was pleased with my husband, the shepherd. His boots hit the floor a little later on these days and that's okay because he is telling anyone who will listen the good news. What a what a touching depiction of the the heart potentially of those shepherds and what they were shown and what they did and the scriptures tell us what they did as a result. It just gives you this reality of the birth of Jesus is not some ancient story. It's a real thing that we have the privilege of being a part of here as well. How about you and me? Are we emboldened to speak out about the good news of Christ? We too have seen the grandeur of the gospel message, and we too have been invited to be a part of that message. We have. So what are we doing about it? You know, the the question we asked at the beginning here was, how do we keep Jesus at the center of Christmas? How do you do that? Well, folks, when you know the story and you delve into the details like we're, we're looking at, it gives you the strength, it gives you the peace, it gives you the courage, it gives you the inspiration and the, and, and the fortitude to say, let's move forward. Let's do something about it. Let's share some goodness that maybe we wouldn't have shared before because this story is real inside of us. It was real inside of Mary as well. Let's look at Luke chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. So for Mary, this was a time of awe-struck wonder. She had been living in faith for the last nine months, and now that Jesus was born, her faith would begin to take on a whole new meaning. And Jonathan, you wonder if they ever saw any of those shepherds ever again. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, probably not. I mean, perhaps. But the idea is that God gave all of these players the opportunity to be a part. You know, you had, you had Zacharias and Elizabeth, the, the parents of John the Baptist, and, and Joseph and Mary and the shepherds, and all of them displayed the same things, humility and a desire to serve God. That's the essence of the account of the birth of Jesus. So finally, making Jesus our focus, what do we have? Godly and glorious displays remind us of the most important things. As we observe the glitter, lights, and music of Christmas, let us always remember the glory, the light of the gospel, and the music from heaven that proclaimed that salvation had arrived, and its name was Jesus. Its name was Jesus. Salvation has arrived. Folks, it's with us, and it's been with us for 2,000 years. And we have the opportunity now to be reminded because the world focuses on Christmas and what it's supposed to mean. But we know more and we have more and we've been given more. So what do we do with that? Let's take this account and these details and bring them deep into our hearts so they can explode out of us with the enthusiasm for what Jesus stands for, for what he did for us and what the gospel means for every man woman and child to ever live. Praise God, and may Christmas be about the birth of our Lord Jesus. Think about it. 
Folks, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback and send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channel like Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week. Next week, whose voices are you listening to? Whose voices are you listening to? Talk to you then.